Hello, everybody. This is Dan Woods from Early Adopter Research. I'm here today with Leanne Waldahl, a leading researcher who understands how to create research programs and manage research and analytics departments to support product development and design. She's had a career that spanned a lot of different areas, uh, from user experience research to all sorts of other roles at various companies, and I'll let her talk about that in a second. But I'm really excited to talk to her today because on the Designing Enterprise Platforms podcast, we always like to understand how we can do a better job of understanding how to create platforms that serve our users inside and outside of companies. Usually we're trying to figure out how to create a product-based platform, but when we create a product-based platform, we're also trying to figure out what the users need. And this is what Leanne can help us do. And I believe this is a very underutilized discipline for CIOs, CTOs, and line of business leaders who are designing systems for internal use especially. So Leanne, so happy to have you on the, the podcast. Great to be here. Now, could you just explain a little bit the path that you've taken uh, through your career and you know, the kind of things that you do now to support product and design with research? Sure. So I started out in the early 90s as a statistician, something that we now call a data scientist. Um, and from there, I moved to San Francisco when the web was exploding to work in the web industry, worked for a couple of different startups, and then um, started my own agency. And my agency did a variety of things. We did um, QA work for web and mobile. We did user research, qualitative and quantitative. And at one time, we actually did server and performance load testing before that got automated. This was uh, a, a company called Otivo, and it was through Otivo that I first met uh, Leanne when I was CTO of thestreet.com, and we were using the Otivo services to help the website become better. It was fantastic. It was a great engagement. So when I shut down the consulting agency, I went to Dropbox, started their um, research team there as the company grew. Um, when I left Dropbox, I went to Autodesk to run a team of research and analytics across multiple desktop software applications. And lastly, I was at New Relic where I ran product research, um, feeding insights into product design, uh, marketing, and sales about their users and customers. That's what was so interesting to me is that at, at New Relic, at Autodesk, and Dropbox, you were always trying to create a product that is going to be used in an enterprise context. And, you know, what I find when I talk to CIOs and CTOs and line of business leaders who are creating um, new uh, ways of working, that they often uh, don't spend enough time to figure out, you know, how their users are, are, are reacting, what their users want. And, and it's that kind of research that I think would really benefit and reduce the risk of some of these large implementations. Because the way I see it is if you're designing an enterprise platform, you are designing a product. Now, how do you actually um, uh, 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 help um, somebody in that process with research? Well, the first thing to realize, just to be a little provocative, is that if it's an enterprise product where people are being told to use it, they may not actually want to use it. So when you do research with users of enterprise products, it's slightly different from users of consumer products where they chose to use it. You know, the famous like Warren Buffett quote around, you know, price is what you pay, value is what you get. Um, in the enterprise um, situation where somebody made a decision and then rolled it out to all of the users, 
when you're looking at um, how users get value, you're looking at how users get value in the work where they've been asked to use the product. Or you're looking at users who are big fans of the product, maybe you're instrumental in um, encouraging the decision maker to purchase the product. Um, and there are people who are fit right in with that um, Warren Buffett quote, they would actually pay for the product. But, you know, but just keep in mind, you always have these users who are told to use it and it's a part of their work and it's not the thing they would choose to use. Well, you know, I see that in the uh, uh, enterprise marketplace where you have certain products. Um, I think, for example, Splunk, perhaps, or Tableau, or, you know, Click, uh, where people get really excited about them, and they want to use them, and they become advocates. And then you have other products, you know, where people use them, like you said, because they have to, and they, they, just, they don't tend to get that, that sort of product love uh, mm-hmm. uh, from uh, their users. Yeah, and I see that with even the things that are often touted as being things people love, like Slack. You'll find people who um, Slack is the thing that the company they use when they come in. And even though maybe everybody seems to love it, there's always a percentage of people who are like, I have to use this for work. I would never use this if I had a choice. Um, So I just always think it's important in enterprise context to keep that in mind. Got it. Um, so that you aren't asking people to about their satisfaction or asking them to provide an MPS score. You're asking them more about like, how does this help you get your work done? Well, good. Well, let's, um, let's collaboration or designing something or managing something or whatever it is. Well, let's keep that in mind in that, you know, the early adopter audience that we try to serve in this podcast are people who are really trying to create massive value from using technology. You know, the, the, it's the use value. And if you can get an internal sort of product, you know, uh, use case fit, it's just that's where the real tremendous value comes from enterprise technology. So let's, get, let's, let, let's take a step back and, and just talk about the research process in general. You know, what is the modern research landscape? What do researchers do in the modern, you know, world? Uh, uh, you know, what, when people have asked you to come into their, you know, companies, you know, what, what have they been asking you for? What, what, you know, the price they paid was, you know, giving you a lovely salary and everything, but what was the value they were looking for? Well, I've often been brought into companies to lead research when they hit um, some sort of point in product development or product acceptance out in the market where they aren't seeing as much growth as they want to see. And so for a lot of companies who have products that have had a lot of, um, high growth when they started, a lot of early adopters, a lot of, um, you know, sort of like up, 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 up growth, and they get the upside down hockey stick. Once they hit that point, they wonder like, what's going on? Another point that people bring in research is when they're trying to understand how to engage people more in their product. And there the road sort of splits a little bit between are we looking to increase engagement because that provides value for the user? Or are we looking to increase engagement because that's the measure that we have of our business success? Now, it's really interesting to me uh, to, to think about what you just said, because what it brings to mind is the idea that you seem to get brought in when it's time to institutionalize a lot of these product decisions. And, you know, up until that point, perhaps the, the, the product was created based on the vision of the founders or based on, you know, the original product market fit. But now it seems like what you're, you're being brought in to do is manage 
the, the risk of having so many possible things to go and do and not really knowing institutionally, not individually, but institutionally, how do you sort all that out? Yeah, and figuring out what to prioritize. You know, a lot of times, particularly when you're making products for an enterprise market, you're prioritizing things based on what your most important customers are saying. And that's perfectly fine. Um, but oftentimes people realize that's not going to help them grow the business and move into other markets or move into other companies that they want to sell their product into. So then sometimes the, you know, the salespeople are doing research, product managers are doing research, designers are doing research, marketing is doing research. Usually lots of people are doing research. Oftentimes they might have a, a bias towards it. They want to make sure they get something launched. They want to make sure they sell something to the customer. They want to make sure the messaging is right. Oftentimes when research as a practice is brought in, it's being brought in so that everybody can just step back a little and look at a bigger landscape. Now you said when we were prepping for this call that research is really about risk management. And then you introduced the double diamond model. Could you explain what you mean by, by that? Sure. Sure. So double diamond is came out of, um, some people who think more about design and how design fits in and how humans fit into the way that we develop products in a product delivery life cycle. So if you put two diamonds next to each other, the diamonds go wide and then move back into a point and then go wide again and move back into a point. And if you think about that, if you start on the far left of the first diamond, you might be going out to a explore if the problem you're solving for is the right problem. So you're reducing risk there by, you might think that the problem is people like red pens better than blue pens, so we're going to make red pens. You might just check in with your user base, the markets, target markets you're going after, whoever it is who's using the pens that you're making, um, to make sure that's still the problem they're having. You might find out, for example, when you go out and explore either quantitatively or qualitatively with users or markets, that red pens and blue pens aren't the thing, it's black pens that are the problem. And then you might converge down into redefining your problem statement to be like, oh, we need to actually develop things around black pens. If you hadn't checked in with your users or market first, you might have just sort of like self-referential looked at yourself and how you and others that you know use it and think that blue pens are the solution. So that's just one example of how you might start with a little more exploration before you start developing something. Um, a lot of people think that um, that takes a lot of time. It doesn't. If you already have a large user base, if you already know your market, you can do a really quick survey. What's going on out there with red, blue, and black pens? So it's an example for like some sort of problem someone's trying to solve. Um, and you're keeping humans in your decision space all along the way. Then when you go into designing, prototyping, wireframing, and developing the solution, so say we're developing black pens at this point, um, you'd have some sort of um, beta group of users, or you'd have a panel or community of users, or you'd have you know, iterative user testing while you're developing before you launch. And then once you get to the edge of the right side um, diamond of the double diamond, you would have launched, you would know what you're looking for. You wouldn't be surprised by the um, reaction of your market or your user base because you would have been involving those people all along the way. Got Just it. So, like so much more successful launches. Got it. And so that's the risk that you're managing is the risk that when you finally get something in the market, it actually is fitting the need that you intended. Yeah, so just like QA, you know that if you um, spend no time testing your product, you know, for functionality, um, and with research, you spend no time um, checking in with users out there to see if it fits their needs, um, you might have a big surprise, and it might be much more difficult to fix once you launch. 
the earlier you start just doing like little bits of testing and research, you know, involving humans and making sure things work the way you expect it to, the less expensive it is going to going to be to fix things after it launches. And if you've been doing that along the way, you'll also know how to measure your success. So after something launches, you'll know what sort of success metrics you're looking for, because you know what mean what success means to the people that you're delivering something to. Got it. Now, there's a variety of different type of research that you uh, identified when we were prepping. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Could you just go through the, the different food groups of research and, and what they're used for and how they fit into the risk, this risk management challenge? Oh, sure. So if you look at like qualitative research, that's something that's looking at a smaller number of people and going more deeply with them, getting richer information about the intention behind why people do things, their needs, maybe going out and observing um, people to see what they're doing so you can see gaps. When you do um, qualitative research that's remote interviews or just phone interviews, you don't get to see somebody's environment. You don't see the post-it notes around their computer. You don't see the other products that they might be using throughout their day. So we think of qualitative as small numbers and really rich. Quantitative is usually referred to as surveys. So you're looking at bigger numbers of people and less rich information about them because you can't, in a survey, you can't follow up with someone when they answer a question to ask them to tell you more about it. Qualitative and quantitative sort of look at the present and might point to the future. Then we have analytics, which is always looking at the immediate to more distant past. Um, And I like to mix analytics, like everything that we know about what people were doing up to like one second ago or five minutes ago, with things that we can learn from humans reporting to us what they tell us, what we see them doing, and what they say they're doing with quantitative and qualitative research. Now, would you include A-B testing as part of research? Mm, Sort of. Um, If you mix A-B testing with research, so you make sure that you're testing with humans the things that are going into the A-B test ahead of time, you can make sure that you aren't testing crap versus crap. So you never know if you come up with like two different ideas for a feature, for some messaging, for, you know, a funnel flow or whatever it is you're doing, how people actually think about it. If all you do is put it out there for them and see which one they choose, you don't get a chance to also talk to them and see why did you choose that? Or why didn't you choose the other one? And um, sometimes when you um, talk with people about their two different choices, they'll tell you that it's crap versus crap. They're just choosing the lesser of two evils. And then you can improve the things that you're putting out there for an A-B test. So you make sure you actually have things that both people, that people want um, and you're testing things that actually meet a need against each other. Got it. So you have to have the, uh, the story uh, uh, in a larger level of what you're trying to understand. Yeah. And it can be really lightweight. Uh, you know, like I mentioned earlier, a big complaint of research is it takes forever. It doesn't have to. You can do really lightweight things as long as you have an infrastructure set up of access to users to just go get some quick feedback before you launch something out to a larger population. And then uh, you mentioned that one thing that was really helpful for you was the InVision maturity model that you can find at designbetter.co. Could you explain to me how that's helpful for you? Sure. So if you're on a design team or a product team and you're wondering where do we fit in, like are we doing things um, in a mature, modern way, the way we develop and, and design products. Envision did a lot of research with a lot of different companies and came up with a maturity model for how mature basically your design team is um, with how they're designing things. It Got just it. helps give you a good sort of like benchmark of where are we? Like, are we doing as much as we could possibly do to be really user and customer centric? 
Now, having talked with you over the years in your various different jobs, I know that the unicorn, you know, rainbows story is not always the case when you're doing a research uh, department or when you're doing research jobs. And so what I want to talk about in this next section of our podcast, uh, which is covering, you know, how to use research when designing enterprise platforms, is how is the research used or not properly used, you know, when you have an institutional process of product and design going? Uh, you know what? What is what is the, what is the way it should happen, and what is the what are the sometimes things that get in the way? Well, the way it should happen is is as a collaborative team sport. The way it shouldn't happen is research as an academic team that sits in a corner and goes out and does a lot of work and then publishes and throws a paper over the wall. So those are sort of extremes. But if we start with the ideal, when you have research as a collaborative team sport in an enterprise when you're going after um, people who use enterprise products, it means that the researcher is working with um, sales, might be working with someone in a team that's like deal strategy or competitive intelligence, might be also working with someone in marketing, product managers, um, designers, maybe someone from analytics. Like there's a whole bunch of people who are involved in defining what are we going to go out and learn and how are we going to learn it? And then when all of those people do that together, they buy into the research at the end because they were there from the beginning and they listen to the people along the way. And then they usually together decide on what they're going to change or what they're going to do based on what they learned. I see. So this is, this is, it, it's, it avoids something that I have uh, identified in a couple of things that I call the data brawl, you know, and mm-hmm. you know, in, in the data brawl happens when somebody brings an analysis to a meeting and somebody else says, well, I think that conclusion is ridiculous and let me see the data that you you based it on. And then the argument becomes about the quality of the data and then things like that. Uh, And it's not that that's, you know, that's, it's wrong to want to know that, but that, that conversation should have happened before that meeting. You don't want to have the data brawl in that meeting. But what you're saying is that you you could also have a research brawl. Absolutely. How would the, how does that show up? How does that happen sometimes? So that usually happens by, you know, say a designer and a researcher deciding deciding to go out and do research, but not including the product manager. And then when they're talking to um, enterprise customers, not including the account managers. And if it's something that research that marketing is interested in for any sort of like messaging or, um, you know, conferences or other things they're going to do, then the designer and the researcher go out and do research. They come back. They're like, Oh my God, we learned all these great things. Now we're going to include, you know, product managers, engineering, you know, other people. Um, then what you end up with is you usually end up with the um, account people being upset that they weren't included. Account people don't necessarily always talk to all the users in an enterprise situation. They're usually talking with the decision makers and the buyers. But if they find out you go and talk to users without letting them know first, um, you've disrespected their relationship with their customer. If you ignore the product manager and you come back and say, um, oh, you know, we were just going out to learn whether or not people like red or blue pens, but along the way we discovered that pencils are a really big deal. And the product manager might, you know, push back and say, well, you know, I've talked to a bunch of customers. I've never heard that. And why were you going out and talking to customers without me? Um, So one of the big things that's important in um, newer research teams and newer companies is breaking down silos and really closely collaborating across orgs. 
Got it. And so, so when you show up at the meeting and say, you know, pencils are the next big thing, everybody's like, oh, yeah, I saw that, too. Oh, you know, we we were there when they were talking. I, I saw this at this company. You know, everybody will chime in. Same, same with the data brawl. If people were like, oh, yeah, I helped define sort of like how we collected that data or how we analyzed it, then you get this um, better consensus that you need in order to move forward with a decision. Got it. And then, so that's actually not the worst case because in that situation, there was a lot of collaboration, even if it didn't happen in time. The worst case is where you have a situation where research is just sort of ignored. How how does that tend to happen? Well, it tends to happen when more in consumer products than enterprise products, because people who run um, product for consumer products are users of them themselves. So taking that um, that situation, if you have people who are running enterprise products and they use they are subject matter experts, so they used to be the type of person who used that product, you'll run into the, into the same issue, where they they reference themselves as the user when they make decisions because they know the market and they were once a user, and so if a researcher comes and says, "I'm seeing this new thing and I'm seeing this happen," they might ignore the what the researcher is saying because they'll say, well, I already know this. Got it. And that's not specific to any of the companies I've worked with. If you talk to anybody who does research at a company that makes enterprise products that has people who are making decisions who are also subject matter experts, you'll see that all over the place. And that is that they just can't let go of their own reference frame as a yeah. former user. Exactly. You know, or have a little bit of humility for like, oh, there's actually a big market out there. Not everybody's like me. Got it. Got it. And then that's that's when you're you're essentially that sounds like it's also when you're making the transition from it being sort of uh, artisanal and, you know, instinct based to actually being institutionalized, you know, and yeah, trying to, to make exactly. something that can be a, a bigger thing. Exactly. Uh, and so now. You've worked at a lot of different places and, and, and every, you know, it's like what they say in Anna Karenina, you know, uh, every happy family is alike, but every unhappy family is unhappy in their own way. And I'm sure <laughs> the same thing is true about research departments. Oh, um, yes. And so could you give us some advice about like, if you were somebody who is sitting in a, uh, an enterprise, you know, internally, and they were trying to make a new large scale implementation of a, maybe a new CRM or ERP or a new custom system that's going to integrate a lot of stuff together. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they wanted to make that more successful, yeah, how could they do that, you know, uh, uh, and, and make research successful? You know, and, and you, you've already pointed out that you don't have to have, you know, uh, 20 Leanne Waldahls sitting around, you know, you know with, with massive data lakes and hugely expensive analytics. You can do that. You can get a long way with simple methods. How would you go about making a research program, you know, focused on an early adopter successful? Well, I'd start by making sure that we know what we're trying to move towards. So Amazon has this working backwards model where they write the press release and then they work backwards with the customer in mind. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it is to start um, by getting everybody who's involved in the decision-making for what you're building. Make sure you're all aligned on the goal. Having some sort of cohesiveness at the beginning is going to help you along the way when problems arise because you all know where you're moving towards and you all know and you all agreed at one point um, what you're working on. There's a really old school method of managing teams like that called RACI. 
where you, you know, you define who's responsible, accountable, consulted, and informed. Um, anything around that to make sure you know who the people are, what we're trying to learn. We all nod our heads or we have a, a way of um, deciding that like, I disagree, but we're going to move forward with this. Um, just helps you um, move towards where you're trying to go. And it also means that then you don't have to necessarily have, you know, like you mentioned, a really um, mature um, and, and, and well thought out research team and analytics process because all the people involved already know where they're going. And then it's the, basically the, management. It doesn't really have anything to do with research. It's more about project management and sort of understanding where you're going. And then what are the simple things you can do? Give us, give us a few examples of like just the way that you can do this, you know, in a, in a simple direct way uh, and, and get some actual re meaningful research findings. Well, one thing I've noticed that people usually don't put enough thought into is who the user and customer is. Um, there's a, we all will have assumptions in our mind, you know, like our customers, whatever our users, whatever. It's really good idea to make sure, you know, ahead of time, who's the market we're going after of prospects and who's the current user and customer base. Do we all tell the same story when we're asked who's the customer for this or who's the user for this or where are they on the planet or, you know, what other products are they using or even, um, you know, are they using Mac or Windows? You might be surprised sometimes you'll sit with a group of people who you think really know the product um, and say, what are people using when they use the product and discover that people have lots of different stories. Got it. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and one of the things in my experience around ERP uh, is that you, uh, find that people have all these ingenious workarounds to get oh, around, yeah. you know, the, the, the fact that the, the, the software doesn't want it to do it what it, they want it to do, or they use text fields for a lot of collaboration. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. so the notes field at the bottom of an invoice is actually something that you would much Heavily prefer used. to be a yeah. process oriented thing. Um, yeah. so go ahead. Oh, I was going to say in those sorts of situations, um, if you haven't gone out and visited users, um, in a while, and vis by visiting them, I mean going to the place where they're using your product, so usually in an office, um, hanging out with them all day, sitting next to them, coming back the next day, um, so you can see things like, oh, they actually type all the instructions in the note fields, or, oh, this thing that we thought wasn't a problem, we've now seen that everybody has a post-it note on their computer with the five steps to like get around it. You don't have to do that sort of research is really intense. You don't have to do that regularly. It's important to do it maybe once or twice a year to just be checking in with your users in your market to see if there are things that they're doing that are hacks around your product or workarounds or they actually step out of your product for a bit, go to something else and come back, something you'd never see in analytics um, in order to do, you know, get the job done that they're trying to do. Got it. Now, um, I'd like to move now on to, well, you know, before I move on, actually, I wanted to make uh, sure that I, I brought up uh, an idea that came to me when I was listening to the How I Built This podcast and the story of Airbnb. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, they mentioned that after they were accepted at the incubator uh, 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 for Y Combinator, they had a conversation with Paul Graham and he explained, you know, where are your customers? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they said, oh, they're in New York. He said, have you gone and talked to them? And they said, well, no. And they said, well, why don't you go and talk to them? And so in <laughs> going and talking to them, they just one meeting, you know, with two or three different customers, they found out all of the user interface problems that were really causing a lot of trouble for people. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was very simple. And, 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 and then they were able to come back and fix them, you know, and obviously that, you know, be, that was the beginning of a long process. But, um, 
what, what I wanted to kind of get next is um, the idea of, you know, how can you do this on your own? I mean, I, the example of the, you know, the, the, the Airbnb founders, you know, just going and visiting people. They didn't go visit people after talking to you about research. They didn't go, you know, they didn't go and, uh, you know, have make this into, oh, we're doing a lot of research. We have to kind of get ready and read 10 books. They just went out and talked to their users and learned a lot. You know, mm-hmm. how, what is the kind of like sort of like, you know, guerrilla war, you know, uh, process of research? And then how does that become a bigger process? And then how does it actually become institutionalized? you know, at the largest companies so that it's actually staying, as you mentioned earlier, collaborative and connected and, 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 and integrated and not siloed. Sure. So the sort of like do-it-yourself version um, where anybody is doing it, you don't have to have hired a research leader or a researcher or anybody, all the way to you have somebody who's keeping track of all the research that's being done and sort of like, you know, strategic leading leading research in a company. So starting with the do-it-yourself. The first thing I advise companies to do, and I've been talking with a couple startups in San Francisco recently about this, is um, before you go out and talk to your users, um, get an idea in your head of what the difference is between what people say and what people do. So famous quote, you know, what we say and what we do are not always exactly the same thing. It's not because as humans we're lying. It's just the way we tell stories about ourselves. Um, so what I did with a company recently is I said, okay, what, what do you use to um, calendar with each other? And they said, Outlook. And I said, okay, pair up um, and ask each other to tell a story of how you schedule a meeting in Outlook. You know, just five, 10 minutes. And um, if you're the person asking, take notes while you're doing this. And if you're the person telling, be as detailed as you can. Okay, great. Got notes about the story that you told about how you schedule something in Outlook. Okay, now open up your computers. And the person who is telling the story, go to Outlook and in great deal, detail show exactly how you schedule a meeting with someone in Outlook. And if you're the person who are interviewing, just, you know, say, show me more, tell me more, show me more, tell me more, and take notes. Usually when that happens, within five minutes of opening the computer and talking about it, they'll be like, oh, I forgot to tell you this when I told you the story. And that's the key light bulb point for people to realize that when you go out um, to talk to users and um, be sure not just to talk to them and ask them to tell stories, but ask them to show you. And it helps if you get that sort of like in your own story of how you do things. And it helps if you um, do some sort of activity around something that you regularly use. If you're a company that uses Slack a lot, you know, put your phones down, put your computers down and say, tell me how you use Slack. How do you DM someone? How do you reply to someone? How do you find a channel? Things like that. And then same thing, open up your laptop, your, you know, your phone, whatever, and show me how you did it. So you can get in your head a mental model of the difference between those two things. The next thing to do in do-it-yourself research is always to, particularly if you're a startup or if you're making a brand new product in an enterprise, to always start with going out and talking to humans. So that when you're designing and developing, you have these stories in, in your head, like videos that run through your head of humans that are not you. Um, doesn't have to be like, you know, really academic research. It doesn't have to be fully planned. It can be a casual conversation. It can be casual observation of like humans in the wild. Uh, but just start to get pictures and stories in your head of the people who are going to be using your product. Yeah. And then keep track of it. So, you know, take video, take audio, take pictures, you know, invite people to your own Slack channel where you're like, here's the, you know, 10 users that are early using our product and we want to engage with them regularly. 
send them swag, send them flowers, send them cookies, you know, always give them some sort of thank you for um, participating in research with you. Got it. And so those things sound pretty simple. I mean, you can go out and, you know, uh, uh, do these kind of exercises where you, 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 you discern the difference between people, what they say and what they do. And you can go out and talk to people just with a little notebook and maybe you don't have time to spend two days with them, but you can spend two hours and you can get a lot of work done that way. And then, so like if you were, uh, and obviously the, the results that you get, you know, you know, they have to be collaboratively in, integrated into whatever design process or product development process you're having. But then, then what happens when you say, you know what, this is really working. We want to institutionalize this at at least a, a modest level. You know, what does the org structure look like there? Well, not very many people do this, but it helps to first hire a manager or leader. Usually people start by just hiring an independent researcher, just one person who has a few years of experience. That person easily gets burned out, and that person doesn't necessarily know how to manage priorities of all the things that are being thrown at them. So I recommend that the first person you hire is a manager and you give them a little bit of headcount. Let them hire someone to do operations, someone to manage access to users, send those incentives to users, gift cards, cookies, whiskey, you know, whatever you send to users to thank them for giving up their time for you. Um, someone to start gathering together a panel, a Slack channel, list the people in a spreadsheet, you know, just just a really like basic lo-fi way to start gathering up people so that whenever anybody has questions for users, you already have them somewhere. That's the operations part. And then hire, when you hire any sort of researcher, hire someone um, for qual and someone for quant. A lot of people will say that they know how to do both, but they usually lean towards one and have a smattering of experience in the other. Um, and if you, for your first couple of researcher hires, you have someone who's more experienced in quantitative research and more experienced in qualitative, you'll better be able to have your new little tiny research team um, interface with your analytics team. Got it. I like that idea. You, 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 essentially, you're saying, look, what's your, what, what, what are, what's your food group? You know, <laughs> what, what is yeah, your first it's, love? It's, it's the research team MVP. <laughs> got it. Got it. And then, uh, uh, and, and so then you've got the essentially, if you want to do this at a modest scale, you're, you're essentially say build the department the way you would build a department. Don't just like buy a freelancer. And, you know, and, and in my content marketing work, I find the same thing is true that, that, you know, it's super high value if you had, a, if you could get a, 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 um, a researcher or a writer in our case that could do all of that stuff themselves. But if even if you did, you're never going to keep that person for very long. And usually you can't find such a person. And so yeah, and then you lose all of that, like nice content that's inside their head about your product and your company. Got it. Okay. So um, now when you're doing, when you did, you've done this at relatively large firms with, you know, hundreds of millions in revenue and or billions even. And um, mm -hmm. you know, at that point you're, you're really institutionalizing this and it's not just about that small team that you just mentioned. It's, it's, it's really about, you know, uh, a much larger organization. How does, how does it look like at, you know, the largest organizations? Well, in the larger organizations, usually what you do is you have teams of researchers where each researcher is embedded on a product team. So if you think of like, you know, the three-legged stool with, you know, product engineering design, put a researcher in there. So you have a four-legged stool. And then you have somebody who has the voice of the customer who um, doesn't have skin in the game of what's designed or developed. You also have somebody who has the voice of the user and the customer in all decision-making process processes, 
who um, has the trust of the team. So team culture is really important. If you have somebody sort of dropping in from time to time, delivering insights about analytics or research or something else, they don't have the full trust of the team. They sit in all the meetings. If they sit in the room, you know, they're a part of the scrum process. Um, you'll have a much better outcome with keeping that team really customer and user focused. But now back at the mothership, you've got a bigger organization as well. I mean, I remember you explaining to me that you had data scientists working with you. Yeah. Yeah. So the bulk of the researchers are all these people who are all embedded in all the teams. But there's also a really strategic centralized team who's providing support for all those people and then looking across everything. So what is that support central function have in it? Usually you have experienced researchers, principal or senior researchers, who are doing strategic research projects that aren't down at the product level. So, you know, companies get really siloed. Um, and you want someone who's looking at the whole user experience all across, or also looking out at sort of like the future of what we're going to do next. Um, you can't be looking at the future of what we're do- going to do next or at um, the customer experience all across if you're down in the weeds of a product team. Same with analytics. You want people who are like answering the questions, counting things up regularly for all those product teams so that they can make, be making decisions based on what you see in usage. But you also need people who are data scientists who look at sort of like clusters of activity and workflows um, and are investigating new ways to instrument your product and um, look at data across all your products. You also need an operations team. All of that needs some sort of support. Product teams usually have program managers who provide support. Research teams usually have program managers, operations people, um, somebody who runs a research community, someone who runs the beta community, someone who runs research panels, someone who keeps track of all the tools. Um, So you can just keep everything humming along and you aren't distributing that administrative work amongst, you know, dozens of researchers embedded on teams. And then did you have a user experience person in the central team or would that, would that you consult with the user experience people in the, in the product? No, in a larger um, organization, my research team has been a part of a design and product team and all of the designers um, report up to design managers. So I, so my researchers work with them and I work with the design managers and design directors and also between my research team and myself, we sort of help the design team learn how to be more customer centered. Got it. And so this has been really fascinating. And if somebody really liked this podcast and wanted to become a researcher or was working in an enterprise capability and wanted to either start a prog program, you know, when is research the right choice for your career? You know, what, what, what kind of person? Oh, it's so different now. (laughs) So back in the nineties, we made it all up, (laughs) but now there are, um, Universities that have bachelor's degrees in user research, that your universities where you can get master's degrees in, um, you know, design research and HCI. And a lot of large companies now hire people out of those universities who are getting specific types of degrees to join them. If you aren't someone who um, has experience or or you already went through university or college and um, you want to become a researcher, Um, Just start looking around for meetups and Google groups. Same as a lot of people learn, you know, a lot of tech. Go to a boot camp. Um, General Assembly has different uh, offerings for, like, all of design, and it includes research. Um, Do your – I hired someone once who had um, done their own research project on our product, 
So if you're looking at a company where you can actually sort of like on your own, go out and find users of it, do research on, on it, and then submit to the hiring manager, I want to work for you, and I already did research on your users, and here's what I found. Um, there are um, plenty of companies who will still hire you that way. The larger companies tend to only hire you if you already have experience or if you recently came out of a particular sort of graduate program. Got it. Well, uh, and is there anything you can say about the personality of people who tend to like or succeed in research? I would say that like a lot of um, product teams, it seems like a lot of researchers are introverts. However, that doesn't mean they all are. So I wouldn't define myself as an introvert. I've hired lots of researchers who are extroverts. Um, people who are curious um, and humble and interested in learning about others' experiences, that's what matters. Got it, that curiosity. And then also that openness to, to figure it out and not just keep your own frame. Yeah, yeah. You know, you can't be the, you know, who I was when I was 14 years old thinking I knew everything in the world. <laughs> Well, now you're older than that, and you do know everything in the world. So thank you so much, Leanne, for, for spending time today on the Designing uh, Enterprise uh, Platforms podcast at Early Adopter Research. Um, you know, we're going to use this podcast to educate our, our early adopter listeners, but also to write some more stories. And so we hope we can have you participate in some of those as well. Fantastic. This was a great conversation, Dan. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, too. Thank you.